0: Our scripture reading this morning is Luke chapter 1, beginning in verse 26. In the sixth month, the angel Gabriel was sent from God to the city of Galilee named Nazareth to a virgin betrothed to a man whose name was Joseph of the house of David. And the virgin's name was Mary. For nothing will be impossible with God. And Mary said, Behold, I am the servant of the Lord. Let it be to me according to your word. And the angel departed from her. And then continuing in verse 46. And Mary said, My soul magnifies the Lord. My spirit rejoices in God my Savior. For he has looked on the humble estate of his servant. For behold, from now on all generations will call me blessed. For he who is mighty Has done great things for me, and his holy name. And his mercy is for those who fear him from generation to generation. He has shown strength with his arm. He has scattered the proud in the thoughts of their hearts. He has brought down the mighty from their thrones and exalted those of humble estate. He has filled the hungry with good things, and the rich he has sent away empty. He has helped his servant Israel in remembrance of his mercy, as he spoke to our fathers, to Abraham, and to his offspring forever.
1: Thank you for coming with an attention to God's Word and intentionally inviting the message of God's Word to your heart today. We continue with uh, the biographical sketches coming today to Mary. Christmas is arguably the most widely celebrated of all the world's holidays involving more people and nations than any other. But at the same time, it's perhaps the most misunderstood of our major holidays. Other holidays honor famous people or commemorate significant historical events. President's Day, Independence Day, Veterans Day, on and on. Christmas, however, honors a divine person and re- remembers a divine event. It does not celebrate human achievement but divine accomplishment. As we talk about Mary today, remember that concept. Christmas does not celebrate human achievement, but divine accomplishment. That's why we're assembled in worship today. Not because of Mary's significant contribution. Not because of Mary's merit. We are here celebrating this uh, divine accomplishment and all that it means. So we open our Bibles here to the book of Luke and here we are in this opening passage beginning in verse uh, chapter 1, verse 26, in the sixth month the angel Gabriel was sent from God to a city of Galilee named Nazareth to a virgin betrothed as she was. To a man whose name was Joseph of the house of David, every single word and phrase of this sentence becomes very important. Nazareth, virgin, betrothed, Joseph, the house of David, and the virgin's name was Mary. And he came and he said to her, Greetings, O favored one. Now, you know you're reading the Bible when you read that the greeting was, Greetings, O oh favored one. That's not the way we would have said it in Tennessee. We would have said something more along the lines of, Howdy, Mary. <laughs> God's about to knock your socks off with blessing. That's more about the way you know, I would have been raised to say what the Gabriel, the angel said in seemingly pretty formal terms. Uh, Greetings, O favored one. Um, And get the concept here. It's not that Mary was already so favored, but that she was receiving the favor of God. Not that she had been picked out because she was so grand. She was selected by God's initiative and given favor. You will receive more blessing in this than you can possibly imagine. That was the announcement from the angel. Some have said, some have called Mary the most universally admired woman in the history of the world. That's why so many people, so many girls are called Mary. Uh, That's why it's such a popular name and has been for a couple of thousand years now. Uh, because she is r- r- so honored in this way, admired in this way. This makes her an example to follow, understand please, an example to follow, not an idol for veneration. Keeping Mary in proper perspective during Christmas season is tough both religiously and uh, emotionally and every other way. And since we're going through this biographical sketch, it's timely that we think about how God used Mary and put her in proper theological perspective, as well as what we're trying to learn from her and her involvement in this most grand of things. Think about the background with me, if you would. Her name is Mary, which is really uh, the Greek form here in our Greek New Testament that we're reading here, uh, translated into English, but comes from that Hebrew, Miriam, which indeed means bitter. Um, Why would uh, mom and dad call their kid bitter? Well, uh, remember, um, the circumstances that most everybody was born into in the City of Nazareth, the location that this is happening in, was uh, meager. Uh, by today's standards, we would call it poverty-stricken. So bitter wouldn't have been an unknown concept to them. Life, it, it's simply an, an acknowledgement that life is hard. Life is tough, especially there in Nazareth. Remember in uh, John, Chapter 1, verse 46, when the the question was posed, Can any good come out of Nazareth? Because Nazareth was such an out-of-the-way place. It was such a Hickville place. In the boondocks, kind of considered. Can any good come out of a little bitty place like that? An out-of-the-way place? A poverty-stricken place like that? Where virtually nobody of any standing comes from? So in that context, that the angel Gabriel would come to a city of Galilee named Nazareth to this bitter young lady whose whose name acknowledges the fact that life is hard. Uh, This doesn't start off with an auspicious start, does it? To a young lady, okay? So... Uh, if you're trying to make a splash, you don't, number one, do it with a woman, you know, because of their status in life back in that day, right? You don't do it with a woman, and you certainly don't do it with a young woman. No status, no prestige, no power, no money, no, you know, and they come, it comes here to a young lady, perhaps 13 to 15 years old. Now, how many of you are teenagers in this room? Raise your hand. Teenagers? All right. Think about this. 13 to 15 years old. Uh, Most people, we don't have a designation in the Bible here about her age, but that's what most everybody says. A teenager. Seems pretty young to us. And her status is that she is betrothed to Joseph. You understand that betrothal in that day, the engagement period, was so binding that to call off a wedding, to call off a marriage during the betrothal time took formal legal work, like a divorce. So when you're betrothed, you're essentially married, you just haven't come together in marriage yet. could sometimes be, and custom was even to last for a year or so. And part of that is to show yourself true. Show yourself to be Uh, trustworthy to enter into marriage, that you've been exclusive to each other. And this betrothal period was a time to absolutely show and prove that you've been loyal and faithful and developing a sense of uh, bond and trust between the two parties coming together. And she specifically said here to be this virgin named Mary. And all of that would be very accustomed to the day and age and all that would be expected. And it's to this very common person, to this very lowly city and time and place, that all of this takes place. And it uh, goes on to give us the details. Oh, favored one, the Lord is with you. But she was greatly troubled at the saying and tried to discern what sort of greeting this might be. The angel went on to say, Do not be afraid, Mary, for you have found favor with God, and you will be the favored one. Behold, you will conceive in your womb and bear a son, and you shall call his name Jesus. He will be great." And will be called the Son of the Most High. And the Lord God will give to him the throne of his father David. Now, is his father David? What does that mean? Well, that, that harkens back to the genealogical line that's being accomplished in this announcement. Gabriel comes to say, What's going to happen here will be a perpetuation of everything that started back with Adam and Eve in the Garden of Eden. And will be a fulfillment of all that has been promised. Here's Mary uh, brought up as a person who's in the Jewish faith and would have heard about all of the prophecies all through her growing up years and would have recited them out loud as they continued to think about the Abrahamic promise and the 12 tribes of Jacob and coming through the tribe of Judah that would be then the king, the King David, who Everybody revered. And and now we're being told that from David, in continuation in his line, Mary is going to play a significant part to give us this one who should be called Jesus. So what's happening here, Luke gives us the genealogical line through Mary from which Jesus would come. Now that will take us back through The house of David, right? Through Nathan. But nobody knows anything about Nathan, the son Nathan from David. David had several children, right? The only one that we really know or care about from a historical perspective, right, is Solomon, because through Solomon came the royal line. King David, the kingship passed not to Nathan or to any other of his children, it passed through Solomon. So the royal line, if you turn over to Matthew, that genealogical listing coming down to Jesus would be through the royal line, as Matthew gives us, the royal line through Joseph. But wait a minute. What we all know about this whole story is that this doesn't include Joseph. Physically, biologically, the birth of Jesus will have absolutely nothing to do with Joseph. Isn't that correct? That's right. That's good Christian theology. But he would adopt Jesus as his own and then as the legal father of Jesus, allow that royal line to continue that Jesus would inherit the throne of David. In other words, fulfill the promises that would come through David and Solomon and that branch of the family tree. But genetically, Jesus will come through David, through Nathan, and then consequently biologically and physically and genetically through Mary on to be who he would be, the Savior of the world. So this announcement will be a dramatic rendering of the genetic fulfillment and the prophetic fulfillment of all that Jesus would be, As being the one who would crush Satan's head as promised all the way back in the Garden of Eden. As predicted all the way from the Abrahamic covenant that would say that from the nation of Israel, from the seed of Abraham, the whole world could be blessed because this one Jesus will be the fulfillment of the way the world could be blessed. There's a way that our sin can be remedied through the line of Abraham that would ultimately be coming to Jesus. Here's the astonishing announcement, the one that you know, struck fear in Mary's heart. You have been chosen to receive the favor and blessing of God. And in a very unique way, He is with you to enable you. It says, Greetings, O favored one. The Lord is with you. And what does that simply mean? The Lord is with you to enable you for this incredible role that God is favoring you to have. She should not fear this strategic assignment. I understand why she would be fearful. I understand why it would strike fear in her heart. Me? Are you you sure? Did you get it right? Here I am in Galilee... In Nazareth, indication of the fact that life's tough for me and my family, why don't you just go to the palace somewhere? Why don't you select somebody of prestige and position and status in life? No, not all of that. You, you should not fear this strategic assignment, however, because the Lord, in a very significant way, will be with you through it. And the issue here is not her merit, but God's favor on her. Oh, favored one. The reason why you'll be up to this task, Mary, is because God will bless you. God will favor you. God's grace will be sufficient for you. And from that very first announcement, Mary begins to understand her role. So it was an astonishing announcement that led to an amazing conception. As the story continues, true as it is, not a fable, as we've talked about with all of these biographical sketches, I've wanted to emphasize to us week after week after week, what we have is historically true about these historically real people, Mary the same. This isn't a fable. This isn't merely an allegory. This is a real person that God really did this miraculous work in this amazing conception. Mary will conceive a child even though she is a virgin. And everybody who's ever taken biology will will say, that's impossible. And we're all supposed to say, That couldn't possibly happen. And, of course, Mary's reaction is that couldn't possibly happen, except God. (laughs) And that's the point of this story. Nothing will be too hard for God. Isn't that what it says in verse 37? Right here in this passage, verse 37 will give us the conclusion to this biological mystery For nothing will be impossible with God. The thing that is impossible will become possible because of the omnipotent power of God. So, this will be the result of the Holy Spirit's miraculous creative act, not any human activity. Naturally, this will bring upon Mary the scorn of the society around very naturally very appropriately there will be some sense of scorn wait a minute you're expecting a baby and you're not yet married this should not be and of course it shouldn't be that's not the point of this story that oh it's okay to be a loose woman of course that's not the point here the point is that this is a miraculous creative act of the holy spirit coming upon her Not in some biological sense, but a creative act. It is the Holy Spirit that was involved in the creation of the world. The world in six days. And in so much that the Holy Spirit is the creative one, so he creates life within the womb of this favored young virgin woman. Amazing conception. And an admirable reaction. What does Mary say and do to all of this? After this announcement is made to her, in verse 38, her reaction is given to us. And Mary said, Behold, I am the servant of the Lord. Let it be to me according to your word. And the angel departed. Mary accepted this announcement with confidence in God and humble submission to him. It only took about that long for for it to dawn on Mary what this meant for her. Oh, no. This is a disaster. Socially speaking, financially speaking, every way you can possibly think of it, The immediate reaction is, this is a disaster. And of course, it was. But she accepted the announcement with confidence in herself, in her family? No. But her confidence was in God. I am the servant of the Lord. She indicated her willingness to participate in God's plan regardless of the cost to her personally. And there would be misunderstanding. And it would persist through her whole life. This misreading of the circumstances. And yet, her response immediately was, Behold, I am the servant of the Lord. I'm not just a servant of a master of human proportions. I am your servant. And So we come to this doctrine of the virgin birth of Christ from and through a virgin young lady whose conception is a miracle. It's supernatural so that when Jesus is born, he's born without a sin nature. He will not sin. He won't have a sin nature and he won't commit an act of sin that's essential that that happened through a virgin birth you see the importance of that that's a foundation to what christianity is that's what the secular world you go to ohio state university and ask virtually any professor on campus is the virgin birth of jesus christ true and virtually everybody will say absolutely not that's a fairy tale That's just religion. That's not true. Don't believe it. But if you take the Bible at face value, reading naturally what it says, what do you have to believe about Jesus' birth? He was born of a virgin. Her name was Mary. She lived in a particular place at a particular time, and this is exactly what happened. And this is essential to the belief system of Christianity. It's not optional. If you take this away, you take away Christianity. Now, a word of caution is in order. As with any doctrinal issue, there's misunderstanding and perversion of virtually every doctrinal issue, right? So a word of caution is in order. While Mary is to be admired for her many qualities and her divinely appointed role. She is not to be venerated or worshipped. Let me just list a few things here. She was not sinless from her immaculate conception, as the Roman Catholic Church says. She did not experience a bodily assumption to heaven. She is not the co-redeemer of the human race she does not hear and answer prayers. She does not intercede for anyone. She is not the dispenser of God's grace. And I could make this list longer and longer and longer. She did not experience perpetual virginity. And I get just limitation on the space on the page here. Uh, It's misunderstood. This person and this context and her life is misapplied by not just the Roman Catholic Church, but much of it through the Roman Catholic Church, m- taking this truth and skewing it the wrong direction. So if you're going to think about Mary and her strategic role, you've got to understand that it's been mis. Understood and misapplied through the centuries. Pause to ponder these things. Mary was a sinner in need of a Savior, just like you, just like me. She called him God my Savior. Look at verse 47. My spirit rejoices in God my Savior. She acknowledged that she was a sinner in need of a Savior just like every other person on the human race. She's highly favored, yes, but not sinless herself. She's in need of... She cannot be a co-redeemer. There's only how many redeemers in the world? One. It's essential you get that. If you're going to call yourself a Christian congregation, if you are a Christian, Christianity says there's one redeemer, not two, not three, not ten... Not any one you want, just the one revealed in Scripture, the Lord Jesus Christ. And He only redeems those who acknowledge themselves as sinners, like Mary. There's whole schools of people who say, well, she didn't need redeeming. She was this favored one. She was, no, she needed redeeming. She was born under the law, like all of us are. When God kept His promise to Mary, He was keeping His promise to the whole world. Going back to the Garden of Eden and this promise that Satan's head would be crushed, though it would bruise his heel, that promise coming through the Abrahamic covenant, through the Davidic covenant, and on down through the course of redemptive history... When, when God kept His promise, Mary, you will be with child. You shall call His name Jesus. When He kept His promise to Mary, He was keeping His promise to you, to all of the human race, that there would be a redemption, a remedy for our sin. God uses those who are obedient to Him and trust Him for the outcome. And that's what's so exemplary about Mary, even as this young lady In Nazareth, her immediate response to the announcement of the angel and to the work of God in her heart is to say, Okay, bring it on. Here I am. I'm your servant. I'm nothing but your servant. So whatever it takes, here we are. That's what's so exemplary about her. Wonderful that God's grace manifests itself in her. In uh, teaching us that young or old, man or woman, Jew or Gentile, that's what God expects from His favored ones. Then we come to her adoring worship, and here we begin in verse 46 as we read together her worship of the Lord in response to this announcement. She says, In this, what's called the Magnificent, the Song of Praise of Mary. Praising the Lord for this strategic role she's been given. My soul magnifies the Lord and my spirit rejoices in God my Savior. For he has looked on the humble estate of his servant. For behold, from now on all generations will call me blessed. And she goes on in her worship of the Lord. From the heart of one who believed that God would keep his word comes this song of praise. She believed God's going to do exactly what he promised. And in believing, she launched forward. This song of hers is full of theology and knowledge of scripture. Let me just point this out to you briefly. The first line, my soul magnifies the Lord, essentially comes from Psalm 34, verse 2. The second line, my spirit rejoices in God my Savior, essentially comes from 2 Samuel 22, verse 3. The third line, for he has looked upon the humble estate of a servant, essentially comes from 1 Samuel 1:11. 1, and you could virtually go line by line through her whole song. It's almost nothing but quoting Old Testament quoting even Hannah's song of response of the miraculous thing God would do from her. In other words, Mary's initial response in her taking on the role that God had given her was to quote scripture back to God. How is that possible? Because her mom and dad raised her in Sunday school and junior church and Awana. We know it for sure. Because of what she said right there. She went to Awana. That's it. She was raised in the scriptures and she memorized them. And so when this happens in her life, her automatic heart response to God is scripture. Concluding in verse, 30, uh, verse 55... Verse 54, he has helped his servant Israel in remembrance of his mercy as he spoke to our fathers, to Abraham, to fulfill his offspring forever. In other words, she's quoting the Abrahamic covenant. What's she doing? She's saying, thank you, Sunday school teachers, for teaching me. Thank you, Awano leaders, for leading me and guiding me in that lesson that you teach me on Wednesday night. Thank you deacons for having a place where i can go to church and learn thank you thank you because now it's all just flowing out of me thank you mom and dad for teaching me at home having devotions at home reading the scripture requiring me to learn those verses so that it i'm prepared to be the humble servant of the lord that god is calling me to be you see what i'm saying to you It was full of theology and scripture knowledge. It was sincere, not merely a showy ritual. She wasn't just mechanically reciting. It was from her heart and soul. It says, my soul magnifies the Lord. My, my, it, it's sincerely coming from the inside. And my soul magnifies the Lord. It's continual Not a one-time experience. This this song is saying, in essence, I continue to magnify. It's a continual expression of my worship to the Lord. And I wonder for us, do we find ourselves week after week after week continually like Mary, laying ourselves out before the Lord in humble submission to Him, ready to do what He requires of us. Those are the blessings that come. So what would our next steps be? How are you responding to the announcement of Jesus as the promised Savior of the world? This is what we want to ask our community. This is what we want to ask everyone that we know. Because according to the Bible, Jesus is the only hope you have of eternal life. So humbly repent, believingly receive Him, willingly believe on Him as your Savior, expectantly call on the name of the Lord, and you will be saved. I put those words in quotes because those are the words the Bible uses in response to the acknowledgement of who Jesus is. Repent, receive, believe, call on the name of the Lord, and you will be saved. And I would urge you to do just that. He is the Savior. He's the only Savior. And He's the one we ought to go to in that recognition of need. There was an article in the Wall Street Journal this week that's from Erica Komisar, a professor, research professor, who wrote an article. And um, she says this, As a therapist... I'm often asked to explain why depression and anxiety are so common among children and adolescents. One of the most important explanations, perhaps the most neglected, is the decline in religion, decline in interest in religion. This cultural shift already has proved disastrous for millions of vulnerable young people. What this professor says her research has told her is that the declining interest in religion in America is costing us our mental health. She's telling us here that the disengagement of many children and adolescents from organized religion has had a very damaging effect. It has increased rates of depression and anxiety and a whole list of things she goes on here to to talk about. She said the study that she's writing about and giving us her research says that how being raised in a family with religious or spiritual beliefs affects mental health. And she cites the Harvard research. Now, now we're not talking about a church research group here. We're talking about Harvard researchers that looked at the rates of religious involvement for approximately 5,000 people and that they controlled the research for socio-demographic characteristics and uh, mental health. What was the result? Here's what I want you to hear. Out of the Wall Street Journal this week, children or teens who reported attending a religious service at least once per week scored higher on psychological well-being measurements and had lower risk for mental illness. Weekly attendance was associated with higher rates of volunteerism, a sense of mission, forgiveness, and lower probabilities of drug use and early sexual initiation. She says, pity then that the United States has seen a 20% decrease in attendance at formal religious services in the past 20 years. Here are mental health um, providers, researchers of the highest grade saying in the Wall Street Journal this week that your presence in this service today is critical. Critical. I didn't need that research to know that, but it's interesting when you read it in the paper these days, isn't it? And I I was struck by what this researcher said. The question came up, and I'll spare you all the details, but the question came up, well, what if I don't believe in God? What if I don't like to go to church? What if I don't, what if I don't believe in God in light of this truth? Here's what she says. She says, uh, Professor Commissar answered straightforwardly. Then you should lie to your children. You should tell them there really is a God because it's good for their mental health. You don't have to lie to your children about that. It's true. There really is a God. You don't have to lie about it. It really is true. And there really is deliverance from our sin. And all of the good that comes from the reality that I can be saved, liberated, the chains fall off from my bondage to sin, that's not just fairy tale. That is absolutely true because we have a virgin-born savior who lived sinlessly, who died vicariously on the cross paying our sin debt, rose victoriously from the grave, is alive today to offer you forgiveness and new life from that only he can give. That's the gospel. Take that step. That's your only hope of eternal life. And what about the rest of us then, who having taken that step, what do we do? How can you exhibit humility like Mary did? I'm your humble servant, Lord. Do with me as you will. How can you exhibit the kind of servanthood that Mary exhibited? How can you exhibit the kind of worship that flowed from her soul when you're called upon to serve? Mary had her exclusive role, but you've got your role in the perpetuation of this message that comes from Jesus. Do we say, well, I'll do it when it's convenient? I'll come when it's convenient. I'll, we'll, in, we'll inculcate our children with religious belief occasionally. <laughs> or we, will we make this the primary central focus of Christian homes and families? That's what's called on. That's what's called for in this radical message from the Word of God as displayed in the life of Mary. Bow our heads and close our eyes and think about our response to this supernatural message. It's beyond us, yes. But it's for us. Would you repent of your sin and call upon the Lord to be your Savior today? Would you? This is your opportunity This is your time to respond. Ask the Lord to forgive you and save you today. If you've never been saved, this is the moment. Please, please do it. Start down that road of being a believing follower, servant of the Lord. Maybe you're five years down the road of that journey. Maybe you're 50 years down the road of that journey. Do you find yourself accurately described as a humble servant of the Lord? Are you diligently bringing your children up in the nurture and admonition of the Lord? Is that a primary goal and purpose for you? Lord, help us to realign how important this is. Help us to rededicate ourselves to this message and to living it out. Thank you for your grace in our lives to bring us to it. In Jesus' name. Would you stand with me? to invite somebody to hear that message in song, Mary's response to the Lord was a song of worship. People following Jesus have been singing ever since. Right? And we're going to sing tonight. We're going to sing that incarnation song tonight. God so loved the world. Invite somebody to come with you. Say to them, would you come and sit with me? Who could could avoid an invitation like that? Somebody as winsome and nice and kind as you? Nobody could turn down an invitation like that. Would you come and sit with me? (laughs) And then as you go out, remember to sign up for the farewell reception, please. Right there on that table as you go out the door. Thank you, Lord, for our time together today. Thank you for our church family. May we grow this family through evangelism and discipleship, we pray in Jesus' name.